We're in a new series, Mighty to Save. We're in the book of Exodus. And the title of today's message is, When the Story Turns for the Worse. When the Story Turns for the Worse. Let's uh, try to go back to the Egypt of Moses' day. It's the 13th century before Christ. And Pharaoh is the ruler of Egypt. He believes that he is the son of the supreme god, Ra. He believes that he is the representative of the gods of Egypt on earth. He believes that he has divine authority. He believes that everything in the kingdom actually exists to serve him. He has in his crown the serpent goddess. In his mind, that serpent symbolizes his right to rule, his authority, his deity, the serpent goddess, it's understood by the Egyptians that she is the one that rules the Nile Delta, that she is the one that rules over uh, lower Egypt, and so that symbol in his crown, it communicates to him, and it is to communicate to others that he has the power to rule, that he is the mediator between the gods of Egypt and the people of the earth. He can bless, he can curse, he can honor, he can oppress, and he can even kill the innocent. It's his right. He speaks the language of the serpent. As we read through chapter 1, we see that he enslaves the Hebrew people. They are relegated to forced labor. When that does not limit their growth, because he sees the Hebrews as a threat, he decides that all male Hebrew children should be killed at birth. Again, he's unsuccessful in his attempt to limit the growth of the Hebrew people, and so he goes farther. He thinks the gods of the Nile will act on his behalf. There's a God that created the Nile. There's a God that is the spirit of the Nile. Surely the gods of the Nile will help him to kill the Hebrew male children. So we read at the end of chapter 1, verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So you'll remember that when the Hebrew people moved to Egypt, they were being invited by another Pharaoh. Egypt was a place of salvation. They were given the land of Goshen, a region of plenty. But now under this current pharaoh, they live under oppression, they are enslaved, and they couldn't be farther from the Garden of Eden. As we read the opening chapters of Exodus, we are led to ask the following questions. Where's God? Does God see his people? Does he hear their cries? Will he act on their behalf? Will he he make himself known to them? Where is he? Let's read Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And please pay attention because there are many fascinating details in the text. So Exodus chapter 2 verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, 
she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for a basket took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So during this moment of slavery... This moment when Pharaoh is attempting to commit genocide. A Levite man marries a Levite woman. We're meant to take note. Who are the Levites? Well, a tribe of Israel. But who will they become? The Levites will become the priests of Israel. They will become those that exercise spiritual and judicial leadership in Israel. And Moses is born... To a Levite couple. We are meant to take note. Remember, Pharaoh, he sees himself as the mediator between people on earth and the gods of Egypt. He's the priest. And so in the detail, we see that God is beginning to act on behalf of his people. Moses will become a covenant mediator. God will make himself known not only to Moses, but to the people of Israel and to the people of Egypt. Verse 2 reads, this is about Moses' mother, when she saw that he was a fine child, literally, in the original is, when she saw him that he was good. The language actually echoes Genesis, the creation account. And so those who read the text, the Hebrew people, as they read this text, were to take note that God was actually doing something new among them here. He was creating something new. This was like a second creation. Through Moses, God would do something new among the people of Israel. Moses' mother, she hides her son like a treasure. And when she can no longer hide her son at home, she puts him in a papyrus reed basket. It's waterproofed with tar and pitch. The word for basket in the original, it's the same as the word used for Noah's Ark. This word's only used two times in the Old Testament. And so again, the reader of Exodus 2 is to note that God will probably do something special through Moses as he did through Noah. Moses' mother is clever. She puts her baby in the one place where the Egyptians will not look for him. 
Remember, Pharaoh wants all Hebrew male children to be cast into the Nile. So the one place that they probably won't look is in the river. And there's Moses in a basket, fragile, exposed. Moses' sister, probably Miriam, The text doesn't give her name, but later in Exodus, she's named as Miriam. She's watching. Miriam is probably 6 to 12 years of age. She's old enough to guard her baby brother without drawing attention. Old enough to speak the Egyptian language, and so when Pharaoh's daughter does appear, she can speak to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter comes to, to bathe in the Nile River. Why would she come to the river to bathe? Why is she not bathing in her palace? Well, she probably comes to the Nile to bathe because the river is sacred to the Egyptians. You see, they believe that the river is actually the source of life. It's the source of fertility. Maybe she actually wants to have a child. Pharaoh's daughter discovers the basket among the reeds. When she opens it, she realizes that it's a Hebrew baby. This is a dangerous moment. This is unexpected. This is a surprise. And Moses' sister acts very quickly with wit, with courage, with faith. She approaches Pharaoh's daughter and asks, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Moses' mother, a slave woman, will be paid to nurse her own child. Nursing contracts at that time in the ancient Near East could last for three to four years. Years. So imagine what is being proposed here. Notice the irony. Pharaoh, he wants to eliminate all Hebrew male children. He wants Moses dead. And his daughter, his daughter will not only save Moses, but take him to be her son. Moses' mother. If anyone on earth wants the best for Moses, it's his mother. And she will be paid by Pharaoh's household to nurse her own son. So we are to take note of the irony, but more importantly, we are to take note of God's providence. God is acting in a way far beyond anything that Moses' mother could ever have imagined. The God who is mighty to save, he acts on our behalf when we are fragile and vulnerable. He acts on our behalf when we are fragile and vulnerable. We see God acting on behalf of Moses when he is not even aware of what's happening around him. So I ask myself and I ask you, in our infancy, before we could even formulate a thought about God, was he acting on our behalf? Before we even knew who Jesus was, was God acting on our behalf? I would encourage you this week to take time, maybe this afternoon or during the week, just take time to remember the key events in your life. Remember your infancy. Remember your adolescence. Remember your young adult years. Remember the events in your life. Remember the people that God placed in your life, key Mentors, remember the moments of trial and suffering. Just take time to look at your life and ask the question, was God present in my life? 
acting on my behalf when I was fragile and vulnerable. And as you do that, I'm sure that you will see God's hand. Maybe you feel in this moment today that you are fragile, that you are defenseless, that you are vulnerable. Something unexpected has happened in your life. It appears from your perspective anyways that your story has taken a turn for the worse. It may be an unexpected illness. It may be a relational struggle. It may be a long immigration process. I don't know. God knows what's happening in your life. But do you believe deep within your soul that in this moment of fragility, of vulnerability, that God, the God of the only true God, the almighty God, the God who was present, mighty to save in the life of Moses, do you believe that he is present in your life, acting on your behalf right now, in this moment when you can't save yourself? You see, God shows his providential wisdom, his providential care, his providential strength in exactly those moments, those very circumstances when we believe that nothing can save us. And we certainly can't save ourselves. God will use those very circumstances for ultimate good because of who he is and because of his purposes in your life. Verse 10, it connects the name Moses to the uh, circumstance of Moses' discovery. The word Moses in Hebrew, it sounds like draw out. Pharaoh's daughter names the baby Moses because she drew him out of the water. That same word Moses in Egyptian, it's also an Egyptian word, and it means son or boy child. So in the detail here, at least two things are being prefigured or foreshadowed. This adopted son, Moses, the one drawn out of the water, he will be used by God to draw Israel out of Egypt. And Moses, this one named son, He is born in the land of Egypt, and ruling over Egypt is Pharaoh, who considers himself to be the son of the supreme God. He is God on earth, if anyone is. And God will reveal through Moses that Israel is actually his son, his treasured possession. God will reveal this to Moses, to the people of Israel, and to the people of Israel. Of Egypt. So God's in the detail. This isn't a random act. The fact that Moses is born to a Levitical couple and that they, the mother places the baby in the Nile River and he is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. This is not a random occurrence. God is in the detail. Let's keep reading. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, 
Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Verse 11 says that Moses had grown up. If we go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen is preaching a sermon and he says in that sermon that 40 years had passed. And so many years have passed since Moses was born, since the day that he was placed in a basket and became an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. The book of Acts says that he was instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt. And even though he had grown up in princely privilege, he still identifies with the Hebrews as his people. The book of Acts says that it was in his heart to go out to see his Hebrew brothers. Moses, when he goes out, he sees injustice firsthand. An Egyptian slave master is oppressing his Hebrew brother, and so he acts, and he kills the Egyptian. Acts 7 tells us that he thought in his own mind that in doing this, the Hebrews would recognize that he was their deliverer, their savior but they don't understand. Look at what they ask when Moses intervenes, uh, when they are fighting with each other. They ask, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Who are you? Only a man to lead us. Who, are, who gave you the authority to judge between us? Moses, from his perspective, he's well-intentioned. All he wanted to do was the right thing to right a wrong. But in the minds of the Hebrews, what an act of arrogance. Who does he think he is? Moses will need to know the answer to their question, who made you a prince and a judge? Because as he leads the people of Israel in the future, as he leads the people toward their exodus, as he leads the people of Israel through the wilderness, he will be asked over and over again, who are you to lead us? Who gave you the authority to judge? He will need to know the answer to that question. God's plan is for him to be a prince and a judge, but he, at this moment in his life, is not ready to assume that role. Moses, he runs out of fear. He runs out of fear of Pharaoh. He's afraid of his own Hebrew people. He runs to the land of Midian. He's not ready to become the leader that God wants him to be. He's not ready to stand before Pharaoh. He's not ready to stand before the Hebrew people. He really doesn't have the answer to the question being asked. But God, in the wilderness, will prepare him for the role that he has for him. As Moses runs away in this moment, we wonder, will God act on his behalf? Pharaoh wants this Hebrew raised as an Egyptian eliminated. The Hebrew people don't recognize him as their deliverer, and so he fails. Will God act on behalf of a man who fears, who runs? Second point in your outline. The God who is mighty to save acts on our behalf even when we fail and flee in fear. Even when we fail and flee in fear. Is the God we serve, the God I serve, the God you serve, is he big enough 
sovereign enough, great enough to act even when we fail miserably. Maybe you failed this week. Maybe you failed this morning. Is God able to accomplish his purposes in your life even when you fail, even when you flee from your circumstances, even when you are full of fear? Sometimes because of our failings, we condemn ourselves. Sometimes those around us are more than willing to condemn us. Sometimes we give ear to the voice of our spiritual enemy, Satan himself, who would love love to have us believe that God actually has turned his back on us because of our failings. That we have missed God's purpose for our life because we have failed. And he would love to have us stay in that place of defeat, believing that it is all over for us. The truth of Scripture is that God is sovereignly present even when we fail. And despite our failings and our fears, He continues to act on our behalf because He is sovereign and He is good and He is determined to accomplish His purposes in and through us. We'll see this in Moses' life in the following verses and chapters. Moses, he sits by a well. Good things happen beside wells. You'll remember that the servant of Abraham went out to look for a wife for Isaac, and it was by a well that he met Isaac's wife. You'll remember that Jacob met his wife by a well. And so when we see that Moses sits down by a well, we should expect something good to happen. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. That is a lot of daughters. I thought three was enough. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner, in a foreign land. Interesting. Uh, Moses, he fails miserably in Egypt when he tries to deliver his uh, Hebrew brothers. But this failure of his, it doesn't blunt his justice streak. He lives by Winston Winston Churchill's definition of success. Success is moving from one failure to another with no loss of enthusiasm. (laughs) Not sure that that's wisdom, but... Winston Churchill did say that. Success is moving from one failure to another with no loss of enthusiasm. Moses is willing to intervene on behalf of the seven daughters of the priest of Midian. He has this within his character, the desire to be a deliverer. It's by the well. 
He's in Midianite territory. Who are they? Well, the Midianites, they are descendants of Abraham through his wife, Keturah. They're a nomadic people. They inhabit the Sinai Peninsula. They inhabit what is today would be called Saudi Arabia. Here, the priest of Midian, he's identified as Ruel. Later in Exodus, he'll be called Jethro. And Jethro, he becomes an important mentor in Moses' life. Ruel, he's startled by the quick return of his daughters. And so he asks, how did this happen? And they say, well, an Egyptian helped us. Moses still carries the signs of Egypt. He probably wears Egyptian clothing. And because he speaks Hebrew, he can speak to the Midianites. Their language is from the same uh, language family. Moses is brought into the household of Ruel. He's offered desert hospitality. He's given bread. He's pleased to dwell with Ruel's family. He takes Zipporah as his wife, and they have a son. And they name their son Gershom. Gershom, a sojourner in a foreign land. That's what his name means. One of my friends in Brazil, he carried this name. His father was of British background. He had spent most of his life in Brazil. And when my friend was born, his father gave him the name Gershom because he felt like a sojourner, a wanderer in a foreign land. Interesting, the way that names are given. Observe what has happened in Moses' life. Moses grew up in an urban royal household. In the household of Pharaoh, the ruler of the greatest power on earth. And now he finds himself in a rural, nomadic, Midianite household in the wilderness. He grew up with princely privilege, all that the world of that day offered, instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt. And now he is a criminal exile in the wilderness. He finds himself alienated from his family of origin, his Hebrew family. He finds himself alienated from his Egyptian family. The book of Acts says that he was an exile in Midian. Douglas Stewart, commenting on this text, he writes... Consider then the spiritual challenge that was his. He was a failure as a deliverer of his people, a failure as a citizen of Egypt, unwelcome among either of the nations he might have called his own, a wanted man, a now permanent resident of an obscure place, alone and far from his origins, and among people of a different religion. His character, as we have seen, was clearly that of a deliverer. His circumstances, however, offered no support for any calling appropriate to that character. So a question for us. Could it be that Moses, in this moment, when he feels alienated from his family, his Hebrew family, feels alienated from his Egyptian family? Could it be that he is exactly where God wants him to be? Moses must be asking questions like, well, who is God anyways? Is the God of the Hebrews truly God? Are the gods of Egypt the true gods? 
I'm here among the Midianites. Are these gods of the Midianites the real gods? Who am I? I've been rejected by the Hebrews. I don't feel like a Hebrew. I've been rejected by the Egyptians. I've had to run. I'm not an Egyptian, and I'm certainly not a Midianite. Who am I? And out here in the wilderness, even though I've been educated in the wisdom of Egypt, is there any future for me here? You see, the desert, for all of us, whatever our desert moment may be, the desert serves as a moment for God to shape us. It's a special moment in our lives because in the desert, we are open to God's revelation of himself. We're, we're open to have God make himself known in a new way. Our beliefs, our convictions, they're being challenged. Whatever we have held on to as our identity, as our security, as our meaning in life, it no longer has value for us. And so we're open to having God reveal not only himself to us, but who we are. We're not sure we understand ourselves. Life slows down and we, we begin to wait on God. We don't know it. We think that sometimes in the desert we think that it's all over, that it's ending. But it's exactly in the desert moment that God is actually preparing us for what's next. You see, Moses, he had to go through 40 years in the wilderness in order to be ready to lead the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. It's the God who is mighty to save. He acts on our behalf even when we feel forgotten and disoriented. Know that today. That God acts on your behalf when even though you may feel forgotten and disoriented in this moment. Some of you may feel like foreigners in Canada. So if you're not from a First Nations family, you're from an immigrant family, no matter how long your family's been here. It's true, right? We are all immigrants if we're not First Nations. But maybe you have come more recently. And you're just trying to make life work in the new land. You're trying to save yourself. You're trying to save your reputation. You're trying to save your family. Things are coming undone. You're trying to save your financial security, trying to save your future. And it feels like everything is slipping through your hands. Know that in this moment, which may feel like a desert, God is present to act on your behalf. Some of you may feel like you are in the desert spiritually because of unforeseen circumstances. Life just appears to have taken a turn for the worse. It may be an unexpected diagnosis. You've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. It may be an unexpected moment of unemployment. You didn't see this coming. It may be some relational stress, something that you never expected to happen in your marriage or your family. Know that in this moment, in this desert, God is present to act on your behalf even when you feel forgotten and you are disoriented by what is happening in your life right now. God's present to make himself known. Look at the following verses. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The people of Israel, they're groaning. They're crying out. They're crying out for rescue from slavery. The language, it just piles up depicting their oppression, their suffering. And they start to cry out. They start to pray. That point should not be missed. And God, he hears. He hears their cry. And he remembers his covenant promise. Whenever the scriptures use that word, when God remembers a person or his promise to a people, it means that God is preparing to act on their behalf and to make himself known. It's a cue in the text for us to be alert. God remembers. Moses, (laughs) the one who is fragile, the one who is weak, he sees the Hebrews suffering and he tries to act on their behalf and he fails miserably. He runs because what he has done has become known. God he sees and he hears. He remembers his promise and he prepares to act on behalf of his people and to make himself known. And the God who will act, the God who will make himself known, is not afraid to be known because he is the great I am. And when he acts, he will never fail. So know that, that the God who is mighty to save not only hears your cries today, not only sees you in your despair, But he also is preparing to act and to make himself known in your life. Israel spends years in slavery. But these years in slavery will not determine their future. It's a chapter in their story, a moment in suffering of suffering, when God will make himself known. Pharaoh, the man with the serpent in his crown, he believes that he rules over Egypt. He believes that the gods act on his behalf, that he can make things happen, not only in Egypt, but he can determine the future for the Hebrew people. But he will not. The destiny of the Hebrew people will be determined by God and by God alone. The God who is mighty to save, he has heard their cries, he has seen them, and he will fulfill his promises. He has already proliferated the Hebrew people. They have already grown exponentially. They number many, and now he will deliver them. So again... We see God's hand in the life of Moses as we read through Exodus. We see God's hand in the life of the Hebrew people. Do we see God's hand in our own lives? As we look at our infancy, as we look at our adolescence, as we look at our young adult years, do we see God's hand even in those moments when we were fragile, when we were vulnerable? Do we see God acting in our lives despite our failing, despite our fears? Even in those moments when we ran. 
Do we see God's unexpected grace? Do we see God forming us in those moments of confusion, of feeling forgotten, those desert moments? Again, I encourage you today, this week, take time to reflect on how God has acted in your life. Remember the events. Remember the moments of suffering. Remember the people that God placed in your life. You will see God's hand in your life. Sometimes we see ourselves as victims of history. What could Moses have said about himself? He could have said, I was abandoned as a young boy, left in the river. (laughs) I grew far from my own family. I grew up far from my own family. I grew up with a bunch of Egyptians. I never belonged. I was always on the outside. He could have said that. Or he could have said, God in his sovereignty rescued me as a baby when I was fragile and exposed. And I grew up in Pharaoh's household and God was preparing me for a very unique role in the history of Israel. Sometimes you may say to yourself, Well, I just feel enslaved to the pharaohs of my life. And the pharaoh of your life may be your family. It may be the culture you were born into. It may be the boss that you work for. Whatever serves as a pharaoh in your life, whatever you think is enslaving you. I'm a victim of the pharaohs in my life. I'm bound. I wish I could have grown up at a different time. I wish I would have been born in a different place, born to a different family. If only things were different, I would be different. Or you can say, by God's grace and under his sovereign hand, I was born at this time, in this place, to this family, at this moment in history, because God has a sovereign purpose for my life. You see, God has been active in your life long before you ever had a thought about Him. He knew you from before the foundation of the world. He has been present in every moment of your life. You have experienced his grace. God has a plan for you. You are who you are by God's grace, by his design. You are where you are today, in this moment, to live for God's glory, to fulfill the purpose that he has for you, to be an instrument in his hands. Often we think, okay, what what limits us? What limits me? is where I was born, the education I received. What limits me is this family, this culture, this place that I live in, the government of the day. We always think that there's something around us, beyond us, that's limiting us. But what limits us more than anything is our limited understanding of who God is. It's because when we live life, Marriage, family, single life, workplace, whatever it is. So often we do not live 
the truth that God is actually mighty to save. That God is acting on our behalf even when we're fragile, when we're vulnerable, and we can't save ourselves. That God is active, that he is mighty to save even when we fail miserably and we run from our circumstances. That God is mighty to save even when we feel forgotten and we're disoriented and we're not sure where we should go, what we should think. We don't live as if God actually sees us, knows us, hears our cries, and is present to act on our behalf and make himself known to us and those around us. The desert moment, the moment of suffering, it is not a moment to despair. It's a moment to open ourselves to God and say, okay, God, if you are who you are, then reveal yourself to me. Reveal to me your purposes for me. Because I don't know. But you know. And God is faithful. As we read through the scriptures, we see that God is faithful to reveal himself. Whenever we pray that prayer, God, reveal yourself to me. Make yourself known to me. He acts. He loves to answer that prayer. When we confess our vulnerability, our weakness... Our God does not despise us. No, he comes alongside and reveals himself to be the one that cares for us. He invites us to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. In the coming chapters, Moses, he'll have his vision of God corrected. He needs to understand who God is. The people of Israel need to come to an understanding of who God is. And as God reveals himself to Moses and the people of Israel, he will also reveal himself to the Egyptians. Whenever God acts in our lives, it's not just for us. It is also for those around us. So may you have the joy today, this week, of walking under the care, the direction the counsel of the only true God who is mighty to save. And maybe you don't know this God that we are speaking of here this morning. Maybe you have never come to know the God who saved Moses and the people of Israel. Well, God the Father, he sent Jesus, his son, for our salvation. The scriptures say, the New Testament tells us that while we were sinners, while we were still sinners, God showed his love. Christ died for us. Jesus, sent by the Father, lived among us, revealed the glory of the Father, and went to the cross and died for us. He paid a price that we could never pay. He took our sin upon himself. So maybe you're here this morning and you feel enslaved to your sin. You feel bound by your past, by your present struggle. You've walked independently of God. You've tried to make life work on your own. Know that God is present to save you, that Jesus died for you. The scriptures say that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all do. We all all sin. 
Salvation is a gift. We're justified by faith in Jesus. It's by the grace of God. Redemption is ours through Jesus Christ. True for me, true for you. And so what the Father asks us, what God asks of us, is that we receive the gift of Jesus, what he has done through Jesus. Jesus dying on our behalf, taking our sin upon himself. Jesus paying the price we could never pay. And when we confess Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we experience salvation, forgiveness of sin, the gift of eternal life. The request is not only one of belief, but of surrendering our lives to Jesus, saying, okay, Jesus, I accept you as my Savior, my Lord. I want to live for you. I give my life to you. Empower me by your Spirit to follow. I invite your Holy Spirit to live within me. I want to follow you. And so if you're ready to pray that prayer today, I invite you to pray with me. Okay, let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we thank you again for your your love for us, for sending Jesus for our salvation. And if you have never given your heart to Jesus, then I invite you to pray with me. Father, I desperately need you. Thank you for sending Jesus for my salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross and dying for me, for taking my sin upon yourself. Jesus, I need to be set free from my sin. I'm choosing to turn from my independent ways today, from my sinful ways. I'm I'm choosing to turn to you for salvation, for life. Set me free from my sin. Set me free from guilt, from shame, from fear. I invite you to be my Savior and my Lord. I invite your Holy Spirit to live within me, to empower me to follow you, Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name. And Father, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here that follow you. Oh God, this week, may we cry out to you in every circumstance. May we walk in surrender to you. And Lord, may we experience you as the God who is mighty to save, the God who is present to make himself known to us. And may we out of the joy, out of the abundance of life in you, may we share with our families, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, the reason for the hope that we have within us because of who you are, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And so we pray these things in your name, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. If you...